It's me, Dan, from Harmontown. You can hear episodes of our show and 30 others before anyone else on TuneIn First Play. The TuneIn app is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Podcast superfans get even more from their favorite shows. For four weeks, new episodes of Harmontown will be available a full 24 hours early, exclusively on TuneIn. Podcasts will release their new episodes early, including feral audio shows like Drinky Fun Time, Dome People Town, and Natural. Butte. Tune in is also full of content like live sports, news, music, and audiobooks. Get the next episode of Harmontown right now at the TuneIn app at tunein.com slash Harmontown. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing all of this stuff, huh? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Pretty good? Good. Pretty good going on, feeling strong? Pretty good going on, feeling strong? Good deal. Hey, baby buddy. Hey, baby buddy. Hey. Hey, welcome to Twisting the Wind. This is it. You're in it. You just got here. Well, you got here a couple seconds ago, 20 seconds ago, maybe a minute. Thanks for stepping into it. Put your head inside the bucket and listen to the sounds of your voice running around that circle, okay? Circle's going to send it back. It's going to be fine. This is Twisting the Wind, the podcast here on the Feral Audio Network. I'm Johnny Pemberton. I'm the person who uh, provides for this provides for this i uh i guess so right who knows who knows who's providing for it the wind is the wind good old windy mcwackerson guess what it's actually cold for the first time in maybe nine years here in los angeles when i say cold i mean uh not hot what i should say is it's actually a nice day and by what i mean by nice day is the sun is not out it is occluded it is hidden it has been a occluded by the clouds. It is not uh, 104 degrees. It's more like 76, 71. I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. It's energizing me deeply. Putting me into that deep moment zone. You know what I mean about that? That deep moment zone, yeah. Just did some nice exercising outside got that electricity lit up in the brain imagination while going with songs i don't get this that this is a thing i hear the people say who are training for a marathon that's sort of a thing now you do when you reach the, around the age that i am or at least the people who i know at this age that i am everyone seems to be every other person is training for a marathon i guess it's this thing where alcohol didn't do it uh we didn't do it for you 
Yeah, yeah, your career is moving along. It's not maybe not skyrocketing, but it's moving along. And I don't know. So there's something about the marathon, the training for the marathon, that is a that's that's a thing. That is a point. That is a thing. You, you haven't figured out what else to do. So you, well, I can train for this marathon. Evidently, you can. You can just do it. Everyone can do a marathon. You can do it. So that's what people are doing now. People, I know people doing the marathon thing. It's kind of boring, I think. But you know, I don't. I don't mean boring in a bad way. I just mean boring in the sense that I am not interested in it. Go for it. Run your marathon. Go ahead. Run your marathon. Enjoy it. Train for your marathon. What are you up to? Well, I'm training for a marathon. Uh, I had to have breakfast here earlier today because we're training for a marathon. Yeah, me and uh, Sue are. Yeah, we decided to do this marathon together. Or you know, maybe not. Maybe Sue's out of the picture. Maybe Sue's gone. But here's what I hear from these marathon people: is that not to listen to music while you go running. Which is, I don't. I, I tried it. I try. You know. But guess what? It sucks. It sucks bad. It's like all I can do is like make weird little marine whistle uh, mouth breathing rhythmic things, you know, the minor like It's like some horrible thing to say, like suck a bag of mice or um like I think I had, last week I had one that was uh Put your hand in the mailbox, hoping for a treat. Put your hand in the mailbox, hoping for a treat. This is as I'm running. I'm saying this to myself because I'm, you know, I'm gonna try not listen to music. I'm gonna try to be like these marathon runners and like, yeah, just really focus on your run. Yeah, yeah. What you do is you just really, um, you just really, you just really focus on the run, man. Yeah, what you do, what you do is you just Okay, what you do is you just really focus on the run. Okay. When you get out there, you got your, you got your ASICs, and you make sure you have your special non... Non, like... Touching the thigh special running shots, and then you just run it out. Okay, you run it out. You gotta run it out. You get down real low, you get in the groove, and you concentrate on your running, okay? Concentrate on your stride. Concentrate on where you're going to end up, okay? Think about the distance you're covering, okay? That's what you got to think about. And that music is just going to distract you, do you understand? It's just going to distract you. It's going to catch you off your fucking run. That's what they say. I don't buy it. I'd really listen to uh, music that makes me feel like my brain is melting. You know what I mean? Melting in a good way. In a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Late and echo. And going on here. Election. That's happening. Just, uh, I just have to say this because I've been thinking about it. Don't get carried away. Don't let Romney and Obama, don't let them carry you away. Because guess what's going to happen? This is something that uh, Stephen Colbert said that I think is probably the most insightful thing that it, he's ever... Well, he said all kinds of stuff. He's great, and I love him to no end. But this was last elections, last election season when the Republicans kind of routed the House and Senate and no one knew what to fucking do because they were all scared that the world was going to end. He ended his broadcast... I'm just paraphrasing here, obviously paraphrasing, saying something to the effect of... Um, well, the the sad thing is that tomorrow will not come. There will never, ever be other elections ever again. This is it. This is the end. This is this is the finality. This is the decision. Nothing will ever change again. And he obviously is saying that in jest, as he is 
known to do hyperbole because that's the thing you know this 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 is a uh, two bunch of two fucking lunatic buffoons here both chomping at the bit to get your goddamn money you know how there's, there's been like five times as much money raised for this election than any election in history the money is astronomical it's just spraying like a fucking broken pipe someplace far away where no one even just spray just a, it's a fucking spray of money spray democrat republican alike just a massive like a tube the size of several of several football fields okay football field size tube open and spraying cash and where's it going? It's going nowhere. It's going to nothing. It's being burnt. Burnt to get your fucking eyeballs on these buffoons. Oh, yeah. See, this is the problem. I'm saying don't get lo- don't get carried away by the election because I get fucking carried away by it because it's so ridiculous. Watch the debates, right? But if you can't laugh at least six times during the debates, then you shouldn't be watching them. If you can't genuinely have a gut laugh, it's something one of those buffoons says. Buffoon. I feel like I said an old man word, buffoon. I got these buffoons, but it probably is, but it's a good word, right? Buffoon. Idiot. Idiot's so, like, lackluster. Yeah, I'll think of something better. I'll think of a better word to describe these, pol- these politicians, okay? They're a bunch of fucking... You know what they are? They're a bunch of yahoos is what they are. They're a bunch of GD yahoos. A bunch of Yahoos. <laughs> Okay, let me just tell you here right now, for real, this is a really good podcast today. The person I'm going to be talking to, oh, wow, came out of nowhere and plopped in like a fucking radioactive log, okay? It was good. Okay, okay, okay. But before that, you know, before all the things, if you haven't listened to before, what I will be doing is making a phone call to introduce the guest. Then I'm going to talk to the guest, and that's what's going to happen. But before all that, I'm going to talk a little bit about some music. Is that okay, y'all? Talk a little bit about music? Because I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk a little bit about music here, okay, y'all? Just a little bit about music. This is the official introduction to the music section of Okay, all right. Yes, yes, yes. Going to try something different today here with the musical section of Twisting the Wind. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. It is. It's just fine. It's no problem at all. Today, I want to talk about one band. Just one, instead of several. And the reason I want to talk about this one band is because it's sort of topical to our guest, and it also is a band that I think is just outstanding because... I've been listening to them for a long time, and this band only has really one album. They may, maybe one and a half, maybe two, if you want to like count in B sides and other things that aren't really album material. But basically, they have one album, and I've been listening to them for like twelve years or more. I don't even know, and I've never once, I've never gotten tired of them. I never, never like saw through their what they're doing. It's never, it's never been something that gets older repetitive or it's just fucking great it's because it's incredibly raw and it's everything everything's there it's all everything you're hearing it's right there it's right there in front of you there's no there's no fucking magic there's no uh, 
It's not, there's, there's no crap. It's the real deal. The band is the Monks. The Monks are a band that was formed in the 60s in Germany. A bunch of GIs, uh, who American GIs, who have been stationed in Germany, as was popular at the time, holding down that democracy. These guys all met. They were all from different places, and they all had musical inclination, and they started a band called the Torques initially, just your average band, you know, covering some Chuck Berry and whatnot. And they started getting more into it, and they formed this band, The Monks. But it wasn't just them forming the band, The Monks. They had these pair of sort of loopy, existentialish, visionary uh, designers in Germany, very vanguard pair of dudes, Walther Nyman and Carl H. Remy. And these were, um, these were some designer dudes. And they made the monks, they helped make the form the monks into this fucking bombastic, dark, anti-Beatles is what they really were. They were the, they were trying to be anti-Beatles because the Beatles, as you know, were fucking huge back then and very popular, but they represented sort of this bright, shiny kind of, you know, it's like the same way we look at Justin Bieber or NSYNC or something like that. Like, there really is not that much difference when you when you really uh, pour some acid over it and break it down. Uh, but the monks were the opposite of that. These guys were fucking... These guys were punks. This, they, they really were punks, and the true sense of the word, going against the grain, and to the extent where a lot of people, uh, music people, consider them to maybe be the first punk band, the first punk band in the, in the tradition of punk as we know it to have formed in like the late 70s and 80s to be this... You know, to be to be what it is as we know it now. And this is well before that. And this shit is so raw and so stripped down and uh, non-flourishy and, and angry. It's fucking angry. I think that's the key to this music is it's angry. And it's frustrated and angsty, which is what punk is to me. And what I think most everyone would call punk. And it's out, it's out of time. And that's the, th- that's the thing about the monks is they're out of time. They're, they're this... They're this anachronism, really. I think that's what they, I think that's a good word for them. Chop, 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 anachronism. Okay, let's listen to some of their goddamn music and stop talking about it. And I say we, I mean me. Stop talking about it. This is like their preeminent song, first song on the album, Black Monk Time. It's called Monk Time. It's Monk Time. Okay. Yes, long time. Holy fucking shit, those guys are badasses, huh? 
my God, they're just destroying my fucking ears. Uh, that is that's some that's some heavy duty stuff right there. And I'm not sure if you heard that, but that is an electric banjo being played just for the sound of the strumming. There's not like no one's playing that for. There wasn't some. Well, there's no finger picking going on there. That was just electric banjo to create this rhythmic blunderbuss to come smack you in the fucking face. Okay, let's listen to another song from the Monks. This is uh, one of my favorite songs of theirs. This is I Hate You. Okay? This is I Hate You. I don't hate you, though. Ugh. you baby but call me okay but call me that is a great lyric right there (laughs) but call me (laughs) no one says it like the monks that's the thing is you wouldn't think that a band like that would have such great lyrics but they do they really do and this is coming from a person who is a self-professed disliker of almost all things lyrical but it works for them because they have this perfectly married sound. Everything all coalesces. It's this beautiful. It's a fucking siren. It's a it's a klaxon of of beautiful noise. That farfisa. You hear that fucking organ just smashing your face in. That's the big thing about the monks too. Is that they uh, they worked very hard to create this sound that was very uh, that didn't fall in line with other things. Like they would they would do stuff like they would change chords after seven bars not eight which is uh it's it sounds sounds like nothing but to the ear there's something where all sounds like wait wait what, what just happened that's not that was no wait what are you doing there things like that things of that nature where things are odd instead of even music is so f- so much filled with uh things that are even four four tempo or you do this this many times and you do it half the number of times afterwards so it's all these things like that it is very it's very traditional and simple and nice and what they did is they they did the opposite of that and they they basically stripped down the music that's the big part of the monks was the stripping down of music taking it down to the bare minimum of what it is to make a song and to make sound and i think that's that's I think that's their, that's what makes them so great it's, it's just it is truly minimal <sighs> Just makes me want to fucking punch some drywall. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I'll listen to one more song here. You have to hear this. This is Complication. 
this album, if you haven't already bought it, haven't paused this and just gotten it already, then I don't know what's wrong with you. You have to own these, this music. And now when I say own, I mean own, like buy, because just don't fucking steal it, all right? Don't. Here's complication. This is a good one. This is, this is also a real good one. Complication, The Monks, Black Monk Time. All those songs are off of Black Monk Time. Definitely get it. There's also a really great uh, compilation or grouping of, of B-sides and some earlier tracks from them that came out, um, I don't know, five, six years ago or something. And that's available. I think you can get that on, on CD. I suggest buying it on LP. It sounds really good. Sounds really good, okay? Get it. That's The Fucking Monks. Just get it. There's also a, an incredible documentary that came out in 2006 called The Transatlantic Feedback. And it is, uh, there's a lot of documentaries made about bands, and a lot of them are really boring. And this one is not boring at all. It's incredible because the story of the monks is way more interesting than I can possibly convey to you right now. And uh, it's some, you don't have to know anything about them to get into it. And, but afterwards, you'll be so. <laughs> You'll be so into them. You'll be so into them. God, talk about ineloquence today. I'm on like this very deep ineloquence, non um, bad at describing things day. What do you? What's the word? And in our, this is like my day of inarticulateness. Okay, sorry about it. Thanks for uh, listening to the music portion of Twisting the Wind. I think it's time to hit the phones. Okay, hit, hit the, the phones. phones. Hello, if you would like to speak with a customer service representative, please continue to hold and your call will be answered by the next available representative. Thank you for calling this mask I'm speaking with. Yeah, this is Kevin. How's it going? Pretty good. How's it going for you? It's going uh, pretty great, yeah. It's, uh, you know, getting down to the evening here, getting close into that spot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Today? I'm just trying to figure out a number of things here. Um, so I'm pretty satisfied with everything, how it's been going so far. Uh, I love the product that you've been producing. Uh, been a fan for a long time now. That's good. I always like to hear things like that. Totally. Everybody does. Uh, How, how are you guys? You like hearing that? Yeah, we love hearing that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how to introduce this person, uh, David Axe. He's going to be... Uh, someone I'm talking to soon. He's a really smart guy. Uh, he's a war correspondent, a combat journalist. He's been that doing that for like eight years now. Uh huh. 
pretty incredible. Very well spoken, articulate person in terms of the in terms of the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and even other conflict regions that are in Africa. He's been been there, so pretty pretty heavy cool. duty stuff, you know. That is. That's yeah, he's cool. he's been able to sort of uh, observe these things from afar and really. Really, uh, well, not from afar. You know how sometimes, you, mm-hmm. you know how you like, let's say you take a bite of pizza. Yeah. And you taste it, and you're like, oh, how is this? This is good, right? But then, let's say, let's say you're able to throw on a rocket pack, this pepperoni-powered rocket pack, and zoom up maybe <laughs> 170 feet above that pizza slice and then judge it from there. You'd really have a full, a full view of that whole item and that whole experience. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that's a good analogy for what he's done. Because he's just, he's, he's got this, boots on the ground experience you know he's been shot at blown up all these things wow that's it's intense i know it makes it makes makes me feel stupid and boring you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah so i'm trying to figure out a way to just to sort of segue him into here have you ever have you ever heard of uh these pepperoni exploders they have i have not oh i was thinking i was thinking about making a suggestion to introduce those into your lineup, um, it's some sort of insurgent device. They've been using using uh, large blocks of pepperoni, like I guess they're the size of a small, well, not a small baby, but like a large baby. Like, a, you know, typically a lot of babies now are overweight. <laughs> yeah, so it's like this overweight baby, but it's the sh- it's a pepperoni, and everybody wow. likes pepperoni, right? I mean, oh, like I pe- love pepperoni. <laughs> Man, you do. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things. When did you first start like start liking pepperoni? Um, probably the first time I've had pizza. Really? When was that? You think? Uh, it's been a while. Even yeah, it's hard to even remember, right? Yeah. Yeah, pepperoni is like one of those memory things. It just it's it, once you take the bite, it just makes you forget where you are. <laughs> it's very good. Like, how would you describe pepperoni to someone who's never had pepperoni before? Like, I have no idea. You see, have to try it. Exactly. Same with war. Yeah, that. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think about those conflict regions I mentioned? Um, I don't. I don't really know what to think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know about that, right? You heard about that place called Afghanistan? Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's it's a hairy zone over there. Yeah. I'd, couldn't imagine what it'd be like being over there right now. It is a hairy zone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a straight-up hair zone. Yeah, I, f- I actually got a friend that's supposed to be going over there for about a year and a half. He's going for a year and a half? Yeah, he's uh, he's doing construction work for the Army. Wow. Um, that sounds sim- simple, but it could be dangerous, right? It's something that's... Yeah, that, but it could be. Afghanistan has a way of making simple things dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, evidently that, that evidently that what's been going on over there has been going on over there for quite some time, even before we were involved. Hmm. You know, the Russians had their toes in that in that that uh, poop pool for a while. Yeah, and they I didn't got actually know about that. Oh uh, yeah, well they got their toes basically bitten off by the fish. That's that's <laughs> the analogy they tend to use over there. They got their they got they you know they got washed up and spit out because it just wasn't working because Afghanistan is a is a beguiling mistress, as they say. You know what it I mean? Is. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's I like don't a, really know what it would be like to be over there. I don't know either. It's the same thing. It's like pepperoni, you know? <laughs> you just can't yeah, describe it. it. You can slice it up and spread it on, and you're just not going to really... 
Man, do you ever just want to eat pizza all the time? Yes. Uh, working here for the call center actually makes me want to eat pizza every day. Really? Do they have it right uh, there? Uh, they don't actually have it here. Okay. Do they, we, do did, we did get it for lunch one day. They did buy us pizza, and it was, it was very good. You mean just one day? Yeah, they they bought us lunch one day whenever I started out. Wow, man, that, that must they must have really splurged on that, huh? <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. ooh, baby, that is a, that's a lucky place to be. Wow, so generous that's, of them, huh? So generous. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> like getting free food. There's nothing, especially when it's good. Good and hot. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that slogan, "Hot and ready"? Do what now? That slogan, "Hot and ready," or "Hot and ready." Good slogan. Yeah. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not you guys. It's a competitor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's like, uh, to be honest, when I hear that slogan, "Hot and Ready," do you know what I think about? What? I think about like going to the bathroom. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you got it loaded. It's hot. It's ready to ready to eject. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like. I, a, yeah. It's I, like that. You got mm -hmm. that hot pepperoni. That hot personal pepperoni. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean, right? Where it's like you got that personal pepperoni. Yeah, it's I like, I understand that. <laughs> like you've had that before, right? We've had a personal pepperoni. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you I've got that. you got that pepperoni, and sometimes it feels like it's a pepperoni inside, but then it's uh, <laughs> it exits differently than a pepperoni would enter. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, hot and ready to go. It's like a like a mortar ready to hot and ready. Hot and ready to go. Hello, baby. And I think, was, I think that's why the Afghanis uh, I'm sorry, the Afghans. I was been corrected. You know, actually it's not Afghanis, it's Afghans. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Now you know that. Take that and run with it. Take that and slap, slap it on some pep and roll it down the street. <laughs> so that I think the Afghans picked up that slogan "hot and ready" and they ran with it, and now they're using it in these pepperoni pleasers, these popping pepperoni pleaser pops that huh. are just—they're just—they're re wreaking havoc on the uh, intestines of the region. Hey, so should I just go ahead and get David Axe on here? Because he's—he, me talking is just wasting time, isn't it? Um. Well, actually, uh, what was it that you were wanting assisted with today? I was thinking that maybe you could talk to David for a little bit and see he could tell tell you about stuff going on overseas and his experiences. Um. Well, actually, I would, I'd love to hear that. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, we just we just try to mostly take care of incidents or you know if people have compliments about you know food like you said pepperoni or the yeah. store we, pepperoni. You know, we, we can make incidents like that, and you know we can we can let stores know that you know you love their food and you've been complimenting them or okay. things like that. What if it's not a compliment? What if it's something else? Um, like what per se? I don't know. Like um, like w I wish there was a slogan that they had that was like hot and ready. Maybe it was like like uh, smooth and tasty. So are you like, trying to make a suggestion? For, yeah, uh, I guess, I guess I'm, I guess I'm trying to make a suggestion. You can say that. Well, we can do that too. I can put that suggestion in there, and we can definitely get that taken care of, and let let you know Pizza Hut know about it. Yeah, I would love this. Here's some here's a suggestion I would love to have: just hot, heated up, loaded, and strapped into the pipe. <laughs> would be uh, smooth and ready. No, smooth and smooth and at your service is one I think would be good. 
Okay. Smooth and at your service. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, cheesy and hot to trot. I think that would describe it. Yeah, cheese, that's a good one, isn't it? Cheesy and hot to trot. Um, special and tasty. That's special, very good one too. Special and tasty. Also, I think this would be a good one. Uh, piping hot and not in and ready to go and like maybe sixteen O's that could wrap around the pizza box. Piping, piping hot and ready to go. You know what I mean? That'd be that'd definitely be pretty interesting. That'd be pretty cool. That'd look, cool on, that'd look cool on a pizza box too. I oh, think. Heck yeah, it would. <laughs> yeah, here's my here's my other idea, and this is this is involves making pizza boxes round. So what you do is you make these pizza boxes round. You make the pizza boxes round. You make the pizza boxes round. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that way you'd save on the corners. Hmm. That is true. These are ideas I've the these ideas have been implemented overseas many many times, and I'm just trying to bring them stateside. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Well. I can get these uh, suggestions entered in for you. Um, I just need to get a little bit of information from you, you know, like your last name and phone number and things like that. No problem. Take a, quick, take a quick second. Yeah. I think I'm just going to go ahead and get David on the line here. and we can, He can sort things out because he's just got, he's got this great not great graphic novel he uh, produced called War is Boring because he talks about how he's been in these conflict regions and how it's actually, it's, it's, it's kind of boring sometimes because you're just... <laughs> The action yeah. happens so well. He, he'll probably explain it better. It's also a great. It's a great read. Well, it's a great read. Actually, as much as I'd love to hear that, we're we're you know we're only allowed to be on here as long as you know we're making cases like this. You know, suggestions and yeah, and yeah. That's what I'm like doing. That. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm doing that. I'm making cases and suggestions. Making a suggestion for a pizza to go with this graphic novel, War is Boring, by David Axe. I'm also suggesting you check out his uh, articles on the Danger Room. And that's part of Wired.com. Just check okay. out WarIsBoring.com with a pizza, of course, in your mouth, maybe on your feet. Uh, that would be a great idea suggestion. This guy, he's well, just like he's really got these ideas that are at the forefront of media and life. Mm-hmm. You're gonna love well, to hear I, it. If there's not really anything else that I can assist you with today, um, you know, if there's not much I can really do. I just I'd like to thank you for calling. Thanks. Hope you have a great day. I will. I uh, thanks. Thanks you. And um, All right. just definitely uh, keep that pepperoni piping. I will. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, sir. You too. All right, you have a great day. You too. Take care. You too. You too. Good luck with everything, and um, make sure you uh, just keep that pepperoni rocking. I will, sir. Great. Have a a great weekend, and make sure you just, you know, keep that uh, that pepperoni as wide as it is long. (laughs) I will. You have a great weekend, too, as well, sir. Great. Great. All right. Bye now. Great. Bye now. Just keep that... uh, Maybe maybe like a ball shaped pepperoni would be cool. A ball shape? Yeah, like a ball, like a shape of a sphere pepperoni. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Be pretty good. Alright. Well you have a great day, sir. You too now. Yeah, just uh keep that in the ideas. Okay. Wonderful. Good on you. Maybe some shoes? No. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, welcome to Twisting the Wind, David Axe. That's what this is. Called. That's what this is called. I guess you could say that. Once it gets put into its format, when uh, that's what it becomes. Right now, we're, I don't know, I'm not sure what exactly we would call this, but it's something like that. Yeah. So that's the uh, the name for this podcast. Yes. So um, I guess what I should are you talking say. About? Well, we can talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, we're gonna. I okay. would like to talk to you about the stuff that you do, which is I think really interesting. Uh. You and I first met a couple years ago at the Alternative Press Expo in San Francisco, where you mm-hmm. like were one of the first people ever to recognize me from the movie In the Loop. That I did. Yep. Yeah, about, about five. That's like that's like a five or six year old movie at this point, I think. Yeah, two thousand nine is when it came out. Was I seriously the first person to recognize you from that movie? I think I, th- I think you may have been. People, I have I've met people who've seen that movie like 10 times and they're like wait which part were you in I'm like I'm the part where the person who looks like me is talking you know that's who I am oh you're the the impossibly young seeming uh US official in that hilarious scene with uh with uh Malcolm yeah Peter Capaldi that's the actor's name right right yeah he's scary very nice guy but I was I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case before I met him so I think those uh, that movie and the shows, um, mm-hmm. the thick of it and Veep are uh, acquired tastes. But you know, if you've got that taste, it's just the thing. Veep is is hilarious. Yeah, I don't know if you've been watching. I've I haven't caught up with it completely, but I have seen a good amount of it. But I have to yeah, I have to I mean, watch the rest of it. Like it's even if you ask, I know it's a comedy, but mm-hmm. if you ask me, it's even a better portrayal of you know. U.S. politics than the West Wing. Everybody holds up the West Wing. Yeah. Well, that's what I feel like. realistic trail. I think they're able to do that with the comedy. They're able to make it more realistic because that's... Because so much of what goes on is so buffoonish that that is... Right. Yeah. (laughs) And like, I guess... Right. I mean, I didn't know that myself, but that's what Armando learned doing all the research. And I'm sure you've come to understand that too just from all your... Work. I guess I'm, I'm going to introduce you now. But when I when I, when oh, I first sorry, met you, ahead. well, when we first met, you were um, at the press expo because you were selling, you were marketing your uh, your graphic novel War is Boring, which is kind of that's kind of like your moniker, right? That's your like your that's your blog it's and my everything. Brand. Your brand, War is Boring. And I had just finished reading. I think I had just finished reading uh, Sebastian Younger's book War, so I was like super into yeah. all this war correspondent thing. So it was like. It's so amazing to read that because you your take on it is so much different than a lot of other people. It's not it's like this uh, non traditional sort of uh, you're you're looking at it from the reality of what it's like to be a war correspondent. Which you you've been a war correspondent now for how long? You've been doing this for well, I'm semi retired at the moment. Okay, but, right. Uh, <laughs> but I say that a lot. Um, yeah. Since uh, January 2005. January so 2005. Going on huh? eight. So, and can you like describe a little bit for people like what the whole idea is behind War is Boring? Like what the, where that title comes from and like that whole idea? Yeah, sure. Well, War is Boring, that's my brand because war is boring, mm-hmm. uh, despite what you may have read or seen uh, <laughs> on TV or in the movies. Uh, that may not have always been the case, but we live in an era where high-intensity... You know, mechanized warfare is all but extinct. Right. Uh, the the happy truth is we live in an era of unprecedented global peace. 
You might not know it mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, if you flip on the news, you're going to see stories about war. But our acute focus on the wars we have kind of belies the broader peace that mm -hmm. we take for granted. So, in other words, you know, spin a globe, plunk your finger down on it at random, and you're most likely going to land either on water or you're going to land on a country that is uh, prosperous and or increasingly prosperous, growing mm -hmm. more prosperous. Maybe a developing country that started out very, very poor, but a country that is increasingly prosperous, if not already rich, right. and is at peace. Okay. Uh, so there just there aren't a lot of wars, and there 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 are um, there are academic departments at universities who solely study war on a global scale. There's a Simon Fraser University in Canada is a famous example. They issue a, an annual report every year that that nerds like me read that that asks a simple question: How much war is there? Mm -hmm. And you can chart it on a graph, and it just shows less and less and less. Fewer people dying and fewer conflicts that are less intense and shorter. Right. There's lots of caveats to that. Like we get these nasty grinding insurgencies uh, that sort of lurch on forever, even if they don't kill that many people. Right. Afghanistan is a great example. Or, even, uh, even or Iraq you get now terrorism. Is, yeah, even Iraq now has come back into the... Uh, I keep hearing more reports about all the different insurgent, insurgent bombs right. and stuff going on in Iraq, which you haven't heard for a little while. So. Yeah, and see, here's what's going to happen. That conflict in Iraq that we helped start back in 2003, um, although it had been simmering for a very long time, but you know we helped unleash the forces by destroying the Iraqi government. Anyways, mm -hmm. that war is going to drag on for a very long time, but here's what's going to happen while that war is dragging on. Iraq is going to rebuild. Iraq is going to become you know, increasingly democratic in a, by the Arab definition of that word. Uh, it's going to have more babies. The babies are going to be healthier. They're going to live longer. People are going to be more educated. Uh, and the country's going to get richer. You can do all those things while still fighting war. Afghanistan, all those things are happening in Afghanistan, too, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, overall mortality in Afghanistan is lower than it's been in a very, very long time, despite the fact that it's an active battleground. And that's because of the nature of war that we have. Low intensity, um spread out in both in space and in time. Okay. And, you know, we could talk about why that's happened, and it's going to become a very nerdy historical conversation. <laughs> that's the reality of warfare today. So if, if you cover war today, if you're a journalist covering war, you have to work really hard to get shot at. Okay. I see. So which, is, which goes back to the very nature of the idea of war is boring, because you are... I, mean, I was thinking about this today, actually, because I, I work in the entertainment industry as an actor, and <laughs> that's one of those things where it always amazes me how excited and interested people are in it when it's actually the most, it's most, the most mind-bogglingly boring thing in the world. Nothing is more boring than making movies or TV. It is just like hours and hours of nothing, of setting up for one thing that has like maybe, maybe, maybe seconds of excitement, maybe. And the, the more excitement that there is, like let's say there's some, someone lighting something on fire or someone breaking through a wall, it's like exponential the amount of time it takes to prep and clean that whole thing up. So it's, it's like, it's the most non-glamorous thing ever. And it's filled with some of the dumbest people you ever meet too. So it's this, it's this <laughs> well, weird combination. Well, I'll say that about a lot of actors. A lot of actors are just are very not they're, not they're very boring so i think it's the, na the nature of celebrities is kind of ridiculous that 
So I don't know. Some, some that, in my mind, it's sort of similar to the war. With, uh, yeah, you do. Yes, <laughs> making TV and movies. <laughs> yeah, is therefore a lot like war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you might not that, be wrong. There is, you know, going to cover war. Mostly, it's travel. Okay. For someone who's blessed enough, well, statistically likely, but still, uh, for someone who's uh, who's from a you know a peaceful place, you have to go travel to go to war. Right. You got to get on a plane. You got to sit in taxis. You got to get on buses and trains. You got to sometimes you got to get on ships. Uh, you get, you got to travel for you know possibly weeks mm-hmm. to get to where there might might be if you're lucky or very unlucky uh, in the event that you actually get killed. Right. Uh, y- y- to get to where the fighting is happening mm-hmm. is is just a mess. <laughs> and uh, so you know if you're. If you're like me and you need the occasional dose of combat to sort of liven up your reporting, because mm-hmm. I can report on war from anywhere. Right. You know, it, it helps to be closer to it. The closer, the better. Although not too close, because if you're too close, you're just staring at the, the muzzle of a gun. Right. But generally speaking, you want to be closer to the combat in order to write about war. Uh, you know, you get that reality check from seeing it firsthand. Uh, so it's very useful for me from time to time to actually get shot at. But getting shot at is very hard work. Uh, and, you know, in the, let's see, in the seven plus nearly eight years that I've been reporting on war, including <clears throat> several dozen trips to conflict zones all over the world, mm-hmm. the number of times I've seen direct combat or been in direct combat, because you can see it without being in it. Right. And uh, I could probably count that on my 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 hands on on ten fingers. I'd have right. to sit down and write it down. But yeah, probably probably ten times. Okay. What well, what was the first, What was the most the closest scariest instance of that? Well, I was I was blown up real good in Afghanistan about uh, a year and a half ago. Right. I remember reading uh, about this. So, yeah. You were in an MRAP, yeah, right? Yeah, so that, that was, uh, yeah, I was in one of those mine-resistant ambush-protected armored vehicles. It's a million-dollar truck mm-hmm. with uh, thick classified armor. <clears throat> doesn't it have like a... That nobody will... Doesn't it have some type of yeah. a, a V-shape on the bottom to like disperse yep. explosions? Yeah, that's all I know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that too. So it's got... Uh, well, that's for you. Probably, you probably interacted with these things in your TV show, right? Well, actually, we tried to get an MRAP. We are going to use an MRAP, but they somehow that didn't work out uh, to get the MRAP, which is not surprising because it's kind of a specialty item there. So yeah, but that, that was slated. That was on the docket for the Mega Drive experience. Was the was an MRAP? So yeah, the uh, the military is real finicky about letting you photograph them or take video mm-hmm. from certain angles. Right, cause because because you're right. They have that shape. They have a classified shape that helps deflect bomb blasts. Got yeah, it. more or less it's a V-shape, so they're pointy at the bottom, they slope upwards, so the blast sort of slides along the sides of the vehicle, whereas a flat-bottom vehicle just sucks up the force of the blast right. and then transfers that to the people inside. So yeah, I was riding around in an, in an MRAP in a place called Pakabishana in Afghanistan in March 2011 mm-hmm. with a bunch of army soldiers, and we rolled over a 250-pound fertilizer bomb. Jeez, that's huge. So, that's a... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Yes, how, what, what, what would you compare that to, as far as like size-wise? Like what could that? Uh, in terms of size, it's a, probably a couple mini fridges stacked on top of each Jesus other. Jesus Christ! So they had that buried in the ground. 
Yeah, they buried it. They, the, this is an improvi improvised explosive device. So uh, you see these all over Afghanistan because, you know, the Afghans can't have to be careful. The, the Taliban or the mm -hmm. insurgency, whether they're Afghan or, or foreigners, have to be careful about um, building and transporting and burying these bombs because if they get caught, they're going to get killed by U.S. forces or right. by the Afghan government. So they got to sneak around. they got to piece these together from whatever materials they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. So Afghans are mostly farmers. Right. There's so a lot fertilizer. of fertilizer. Yeah, so you take any container, fill it with the right mix of the right kinds of fertilizer with some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of explosive, small explosive to sort of ignite that. Right. And some sort of detonator. Usually it's like uh, either a, a copper wire that you press a button and it passes an electrical, electrical current down the copper wire, or it's a cell phone. Yeah, the cell phone, cell phone ones are the ones they always see in the movies with the, the, the Nokia brick phone making the phone call to right. set off the... Uh, yeah, and you can do that. I don't know how it works exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I'm not an insurgent bomb maker. Right. But, yeah, you can you can make these cell phone detonators. And there's various ways of, like, preventing these things from going off. You can use electronic jammers to mm -hmm. block the cell phone signal. Okay. You can look for the wire and cut it. Right. But we didn't catch this one. And this one was probably a pressure plate where the bomb itself had a had a little fuse on it mm -hmm. where the fuse was like separated by a, you know, a little piece of wadding. Right. Where, and if you apply any pressure on top of it, the yep. wadding smashes and the pressure plate comes together and the fuse connects and then it blows up. Damn. So this is probably a pressure plate. So it's buried in the road, a dirt road. Mm -hmm. It had probably been buried there for a long time. But when the insurgents saw us coming, they went in and got that fuse ready. Because you can't bury a 250-pound bomb fast, right? No, so it, it had so. been there for a while. So right when they saw us coming, they, they rushed in, they got the fuse ready, just buried the fuse, and then hid, and we rolled over it, front left tire, thing blew up, picked up this vehicle. And you got to bear in mind these things weigh about 20 tons. Jeez. <laughs> just picked it up and moved it, threw it about 10 feet forward. Jesus. And ripped so, all the well, ripped one of the wheels off, ripped a bunch of equipment off the outside of the vehicle, but nobody inside was killed. No one was killed, but pretty injured though, right? Injured. Yeah, people got smashed up pretty bad. Uh, the closer they were to the front of the mm -hmm. vehicle, the more injuries they sustained. Uh, I was sitting in the very, very back of the truck. So the best along place with, uh, with a medic. Yeah, just I was lucky, and I was buckled in. Mm -hmm. They have seat belts for things, and soldiers get lazy, and they don't always wear their seat belts. Right. And uh, some guys didn't, and they got, you, you can imagine, getting picked up and shook up inside of a, a metal canister full of sharp edges. Right. It's so some people got really hurt. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the most dangerous things, is because you're rattling around inside this thing. And that, that, that can be yeah. what kills you, not so much the explosion, it's at the, the rattling. So, so yeah, you know, they tell you, to, they tell you to wear your helmet and buckle in, but a lot of guys don't. And then they get hurt. They get brain injuries. Man. So, uh, so after this happens, what, what then? Do, do, does anyone rush in and try to take advantage of like your momentary com moments of confusion there where you're all... Yeah, that happens. That's called a complex ambush. Okay. Um, on, that, on that very same trip, I had hung out with these guys whose job it is to clear the roads. Mm -hmm. So they will actually, they, they drive in the biggest MRAPs of all. They're called buffaloes. Yeah, those buffaloes. Those have the big, uh, the big yeah. like, scoop loaders in the front, right? Yeah, they got a big claw. They yeah, the claw, the claw to try to like disturb to look for disturbed earth and dig up bombs and stuff. Right. But anyways, they drive around these things, and it's pretty much their job to absorb IEDs. 
So they roll around and they try to find the IEDs and, and disable them before they hit them. But right. if they don't, they've got these big buffaloes and they just suck it up so that so, they clear the roads for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, these route guys are very good. They're very brave. Uh, you know, got a nerves of steel. You have to, to deliberately yeah. get blown up. And uh, so I was riding with these guys. We went on a pretty uneventful mission, but a few days later, they hit an IED, as often happens, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody hopped out of their vehicle um, after hitting the IED, and they got the ambush continued. It was that complex ambush, that thing you talked about, where the insurgents take advantage of the first blast. So they started and they shooting. Follow them. it up. Shoot. Yeah, they shoot guns, they shoot rockets, and so a bunch of them got killed. The insurgents uh, or the, so they've got various the, the troops? The, the good guys. Right, okay. Man. So they, they have tactics for dealing with that, but it's tricky. You know, if you get hit by a bomb, it might disable the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? Right, well, you're stuck. You, you have to get out. Yeah. So in our case, in Pakabishana, our vehicle was the first in line. Was it the first in line? I think it was. And, um, yeah, it must have been. It was a pressure plate. So the first vehicle to hit it was going to detonate the bomb. And uh, we were stuck. I mean, we it tore off a wheel. Everybody was hurt. Not everybody. Everybody but two people was hurt. Um the, it slows the whole convoy down. The whole convoy then has to yeah. kind of come to a a halt, and so they have like they have you pinned down. If they have a re- good location, they can kind of ambush you because they because they hold the upper. They can be in the upper and the up in the hills, right? And they can be sh- raining right. hellfire down on you from there, right? Yeah, that's the idea. We were lucky, and they didn't do that. Wow. So uh, the convoy, we had uh, a bunch of Americans and also some um, uh, some Jordanians, I believe it was. Okay. And uh, they all got out and surrounded our vehicle, you know, pulled the injured people out, let us get out, those of us who weren't injured, Mm -hmm. and uh, formed a perimeter, and we did not get attacked again. And uh, within, probably within five minutes, we had Apache gunship helicopters overhead. So yeah. at that point, if the insurgents wanted to try anything, they were just going to become hamburger. I mean, you can't, you you can't yeah, beat those the Apaches. Apaches the, so. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about and and the Sebastian Younger's book about how those those the Apaches have this uh, the, the 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 pilot has an eyepiece, like a little thing that goes over his eye. Wherever he looks, that that gun turret on the tip of the Apache aims right at that area. So it's like this: if he can see you, then you're basically fried because you get. What is it like? Some some type of an automatic weapon, right? Some type of a, like a thirty millimeter cannon. I don't know what it is, but on the tip of the Apache. Yeah, thirty millimeter. Right. If you can see you, you're going to die. Right. Yeah. The the gun the Apaches are a soldier's best friend. Uh, mm. You always want them overhead, and uh, and as long as they are overhead, you're pretty safe. Right. So um, by the time they arrived, we knew we were we were sitting pretty. They sent in the medical helicopters to pick up the injured guys. So what, how did you, what first drew you to this line of work? What made you want to be a war correspondent? Uh, sheer boredom, right. to start with, ironically. Yeah, ironically. So uh, I, was, uh, I was a political reporter in Columbia, South Carolina, working for a weekly newspaper called The Free Times. Mm-hmm. So my job was to cover county politics, which meant zoning, mostly. <laughs> so zoning, would, uh, zoning is maybe the most boring thing in the world. Possibly. So yeah. I, uh, I sat in on a lot of, uh, a lot of county council meetings and uh, covered zoning, among, mm-hmm. among other things. But, uh, yeah, I was very, very bored. And I'm, I'm, I've always been sort of a restless and curious and uh, an adventurous kind of guy. So this was a bad job for me. Right. I was very grateful to have the opportunity to write for a living. Uh-huh. So uh, it's not my employer's fault that I was bored. This was, this was not a bad job. It was just a bad fit for me. 
So uh, <clears throat> this would be late 2004 when all this was going on. Right. And it just so happened at that time, I lived in South Carolina. The South Carolina National Guard was up. It was their turn to send thousands of guys to Iraq to, to fight the war. States would sort of like take turns sending, you know, five, ten thousand guys. And uh, so I saw this opportunity. I was like, uh, it came to me in a flash as I sat at my desk in my little cubicle farm. So I pitched my editor. I said, hey, if I can score an opportunity to go travel with these guys and, you know, cover the war from the South Carolina perspective, will mm -hmm. you help pay the bill? And he said, well, yeah, we'll chip in a little bit, but we can't afford to be without you for however long this takes, four weeks, six weeks, whatever. All that zoning. So, you know, yeah, we got to cover all that zoning. So if you go, we have to fire you. So, yeah, we'll give you some money and, and buy a couple stories from you, but basically you'll be freelancing for us. Got it. And then when you come home, you won't have a job. So I did it anyways, because I didn't expect to survive any, anyhow. So I uh, figured, what have I got to lose? Well, you say so, you, you uh, didn't expect to survive? Well, I mean, I was, what did I know? I was uh, 25 and had certainly read a lot about war and right. seen so war movies. You were kind of you were kind of uh, enlisting yourself in combat in the only in the way you knew how to. Right, and I thought I was. Mm -hmm. I thought that this would, you know, I, I wasn't as naive as like I think some people weren't because I'd read a lot and I had right. written about the military before, but I still did expect um, big orange fireballs mm -hmm. and you know machine guns and a lot of sort of hardened men cracking gay jokes about each other. Uh, and that turned out, of course, not to be the case. Except for the gay uh, yeah, jokes, we, of course, uh, right? Right. We, there was we that. saw a little bit of combat, okay. uh, but uh, it, it just wasn't as cinematic. It's certainly not as kinetic as, uh, as I naively believed it would be. Mm -hmm. All the same, the work was really engaging. You know, it's still life and death, life and death stuff. It is, so, yeah. And it's politics meets action. It's foreigners, you know, tangling it up with each other in the best and worst possible ways. And it's a new place for me. New settings, mm -hmm. new sights, new smells, new food. So it's everything it's, was. It's different. the peak of so, peak of novelty. It's everything is interesting. The novelty, the novelty factor was high. Yeah, it's less so now, eight years later. But. Uh, um, so I decided my original intention was just to go cover war once, get my war fix, come home and do whatever. Uh, figured I would scratch that itch and I'd be done. In fact, I had already desperately begun searching for jobs for when I got back. But and it doesn't, it doesn't work the way, does it? It just sort of, is, does it start like a new itch? It becomes something where once you experience it, you, it's, it's like, uh, you become sort of addicted to it, don't you? You want to, yes. you're trying to. Yes, very much so. And there's a, there's a good physiological explanation for that. I mean, the adrenaline, even when you're not in direct combat, but you're just sort of facing the prospect of combat, which is constant, mm -hmm. then uh, you've got a kind of constant level, a constant buzz of adrenaline, and it's literally addictive like a drug would be. Right. So, so it's not just that you're sort of aesthetically addicted to the experience of seeing these new and interesting things. No, there's a chemical component of this. And that's the essence of PTSD, isn't it? That's why always. That's why there's such a big problem with soldiers coming back to their regular lives and just blowing their fucking brains out because they just. It's so. It's not. It's not so much. It's beyond boredom. It's this absolute lack of anything stimulating whatsoever. 
Yeah, that's that's a huge challenge, and it's a challenge for soldiers. It's a challenge for you know cops. Mm-hmm. It's a problem for anybody who's just got an exciting, dangerous line of work and then has to stop doing it. It's a problem for war correspondents, right? Because you're all so, you're yeah, all in there together <laughs> to some extent. Yeah, yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's it's a different experience writing about war than it is fighting a war, right? Because uh, I get to leave when I want. Right. How do, how do those, uh, on, how, do, how do the soldiers regard you then? Uh, in the beginning, as a sort of curiosity and as a tourist, mm-hmm. you know, like, what's this weird dude doing here? And, you know, how does he, does he really think this is an authentic experience, just right. breezing in for a couple of weeks and then leaving? Right. But I've been at this for eight years now, so I'm, I'd like to think, I hope I'm not wrong, that... I mean, I do have something of a reputation for doing this this kind of work. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, by now, if you drop me into an infantry unit with a bunch of 18-year-olds, I have more combat experience than they do. Right, okay. That's got to so, be weird. <laughs> you know, the tables have turned, so, and I don't pull the trigger. Right. But, I mean, uh, nor, am I not, nor am I new to this, and I don't, you know, I don't suffer the same delusions that I did when I was 25 and going off to war for the first time. And I'm a lot older than these guys are, too. Right. So I like to think that the experience has changed somewhat for the poor victims of my journalistic attention. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm better at my job now, so you know they can count on the stories being a little less, uh, I don't know, frantic. Right. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so, you know, after eight years of this, it's gotten, it's gotten easier to come home, mm-hmm. but I do, I do this less and less every year. Is that just because you're getting older and it's become harder, or is it become less interesting, or what is that, what is what has uh, made you move away from it? Well, my interest has changed. My interest in le- is less in running around and jumping off of things, mm-hmm. which sort of was the case early on. Now I'm just really curious and interested in the wars themselves, where okay. they came from, who fights them, and why, where they're going. So my intellectual curiosity has grown even as my physical adventurism has declined. Yeah, I'm old now. I'm 34, which is, for a war correspondent, is pretty old. Right. And, you know, I've got injuries and things like that, and so I don't move quite as fast. Um, and I get tired. Covering these conflicts can make me very, very tired. I, I, Coming home from, like, six weeks in Afghanistan, I sleep for two weeks solid. Jeez. So, um, you know, that part of it's gotten hard, but my my mental engagement with the conflict hasn't declined at all. It's only gotten more intense. So that's not why I, I do this less. I do it less because I'm determined now to actually make money. There were several years when I didn't care what it cost me to do this work. Yeah, in the uh, in your uh, novel, graphic novel, you talk a lot about that about the different juggling credit cards and stuff to pay for. Right. It's the weirdest thing you've never heard of someone. It's the last thing you'd think you'd be using uh, credit cards for is to finance a trip overseas to possibly get yourself killed by some person in the middle of the fucking desert. It's just like, yeah, the American Express must have been thought you were absolutely insane. For me, it was worth it. First of all, I did expect to get killed, but mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd ever have to pay these credit cards off. So, you, you, uh, how does that work then? Is is that if you get killed and you have a massive credit card debt, does it just sort of go away? Well, from my point of view, and this is a bit of a philosophical point, once right. I'm dead, the entire universe goes away. Oh, that's true. So it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> so I honestly don't give a shit. Well, <laughs> right. I didn't give a shit what would happen to my credit card debt after I died. Right. So, uh, but today, I, I mean, 
because I've lived as long as I have, and I know that I'm probably not going to get shot on some battlefield in Central Africa, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of do need to actually make a living. Right. And, and I've discovered that I like making a living. That's good. Because you can buy stuff, and you can, like, have houses and cars, and There's you things. can go do stuff. It and provides. Travel, and you, you can have girlfriends. That's nice. Right. And, you and, know, so, and food is good, too, So and beer. So I, I like all these things, and I've... And I kind of want to buy a few of them. So, yeah, i got to make a living. So, so is, I only take the trips that I know I can make money on. Got it. Well, what, what makes a trip profitable? Don't go to Africa. Okay. Is that because no one's uh, interested? America in... has a lot of white people, and they don't give a shit about what's going on in Africa. Uh, that's what that's I, was gonna, I wanted to ask you about. Is that uh, What conflict regions do you think are the most overlooked the, I would say anything happening in Central or West Africa. Okay. So, like, what, 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 what are some examples? Say what? What are some examples of those conflicts? I, I, I don't even know about them, I'm yeah. sure. Okay. Um, Chad and Sudan have mm-hmm. been fighting a border war off and on for years. Um, and you've and been both to both of those, those places, right? Hmm? You've been to both of those places, haven't you? I've been to Chad, not okay. Sudan. I've been okay. to the border, but not actually into Sudan itself. Right. So, anyways, let's do, both those countries have been fighting each other. And they have internal rebellions that have just been grinding on for years. And very um, bloody, right? The, no, 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 I'm not, actually not bloody? no. None okay. of these conflicts are very bloody. And bloody by what standard? Are they bloody by the standard of like the Eastern Front, in World War Two? I guess you I know, don't know. Not, yeah, it, it is all by comparison, no. right? Yeah, these are conflicts that will kill hundreds or thousands of people a year at the most. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them any less terrifying when you're on the street during a gun battle. But right. they're not that bloody. They can't be because they're not mechanized warfare that concentrates massive firepower in big cities. Okay. Which is what we used to do in World War II, you know. Yeah, the Nazis carpet would bombing. Demolish a Soviet city. Right, yeah. Or nuke it. We'd nuke a city for, for Christ's sake. So you could have instantaneous deaths of tens of thousands of people. That doesn't happen anymore. Our politics have changed. Our technology has changed. Our, our sense of what's right and wrong mm-hmm. as, a, as a race has changed. You think it we has? don't fight like that anymore. What, yeah, what do absolutely. You th- what do you think is the change that's happened? And what do you think has well, caused that? My simplistic explanation is, is, is a couple things. One, uh, we as a people, as a human race, um, nearly annihilated ourselves during the Cold War mm-hmm. with nuclear weapons. And I think for a very long time, people were acutely aware of the sheer world-shattering power of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and, and scared to death that any conflict could escalate into a nuclear exchange that would end the world. Mutual assured destruction. Yeah, so I think that had a, a pretty powerful effect. I think that, that people as young as you and me, we don't feel that the same way that our parents did or their parents did. Okay. But the political effects remain, and the sort of legacy of that fear of big war remains, too. Right. I think the media has something to do with it, because you can't fight anywhere now without lots of cameras somewhere turning to that conflict. And it may not, that doesn't mean that some bush war in Central Africa is nightly news in the U.S., mm-hmm. but it does mean that somewhere in the world, someone's paying attention when anyone goes to war against anyone else. And so, that, that also has a powerful effect. So things can't quite go to the extent that they would be before that technology in the media. 
They just because right. cause they're being everything's being watched so much more. Like uh, that's the thing that now I'll see and I'll watch like YouTube trending videos and you'll see some video pop up, some cell phone video in Syria or in Egypt, and it's you know it's it's labeled the title of it is a bunch of garbled letters because it's been sent up through some smoke screen or I don't know, so they don't, can't can't be traced. But you see that, right. and, I, and I can see that like an hours after it happens, so I know exactly what's right. going on. So I can, there's, you, yeah. can't, you can't hide your, your dirty deeds as well anymore. It's, all, if you it's care more, more difficult. To, to, right. If you care enough to spend a couple minutes looking, you can keep track of every conflict in the world okay. without too much difficulty. Yeah. It, it just so happens that, that there's like the flip side of that is that the ease of the access to that information makes most people not bother. <laughs> really? <laughs> because it's so easy. They're just like, oh, whatever. I don't really. Yeah, people, people just don't give a shit, it. do they? They don't care. They don't what? They just well, don't give a shit. Well, I mean, people... Everybody's got their own struggle. You know, like, I mean, if you're just struggling to pay the bills, I can't blame you for not really giving a shit what's happening, you know, with the Lord's Resistance, Resistance Army in Congo. Okay. So, so I try not to be too judgmental. But yeah. Do you have any, yeah, like, a lot of this don't. is there any, like, political cognitive dissonance that goes on in your head with regards to how you feel about war and then being sort of tangentially a part of it? Like, because you're right. Yeah. How does that, how does that play out? Because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's. I was giving. A, I'm going to answer the question indirectly. I was giving a speech here at the University of South Carolina, right down the street from where I live, mm-hmm. last year, and a, a student stood up and said, "If you were, if you were God, if you had the power of God, uh, would you end war?" And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, "No," because <laughs> you know, I it's how I make my living, right? And I like my job. Of course, that's absurd because if I had the power of God, I could also make a living. I'm sure, right? Or something. It's Being a weird. God. Yeah, it's a weird. It's the same thing where it's like, like uh, if you ask a doctor or like a surgeon, would would they want everyone to be healthy? But I, I, would they? They would, but they wouldn't because it's you enjoy doing that, doing that job, right? Operating on people who've been hit by a train or reattaching someone's arm. It's like it's got to be fulfilling. But it's it's that weird thing, yeah. Th- there's just that cognitive dissonance that's hard to ignore. But um, to some well, extent, well, fortunately, that's an entirely theoretical question. Right. There will always be some war somewhere. People will always so, not like each other to the extent yeah, where they want to. Yeah, you can kill. always. Better yet, you can always just shift the definition of war, which we we have done repeatedly. That's what I would like war to ask you. Mean, yeah. What, what is the definition the of war? Today. That's an excellent question. If you ask me, uh, the definition of war should be um, violence for political ends, uh, organized, organized violence for political ends. Okay. So, you know, like beating somebody at a polling place to make them vote for your candidate, that's not war. But, you know, an organized group of men with weapons trying to achieve political change by killing people is it's war. war. So, because that's yeah. the thing. And that political change could, could be a lot of different things. I mean, you could be seeking to eliminate a group of people because you don't like them you don't want them having any influence in where you live so the political has got to be sort of broadly defined well yeah. like if you look at the uh the the war in iraq the like the wars that haven't been sanctioned by congress because they've been what seen as police actions or what, what what do they call them now they don't call them police action right that's what they called vietnam for a while was a police action yeah, or something? Well, what do they what do they call it? Because it's like an executive order that's been carried out that hasn't been ratified by Congress. And technically, isn't that how it works? The the power to declare war must be ratified by Congress. And so, if that's happening well, without yeah, the congressional but, approval, what is it then? But you don't have to have Congress declare a war in order to fight a war. Right. That's just like semantics. Exactly. But that's you what, can that's call what I'm asking. Things, so, 
What do you, what do you yeah, call it you then? Call these things. Call them interventions. You can call them <laughs> peacekeeping. You can call them. Um, you can call them police actions, like a no-fly zone. Uh, you can you can call them a lot of things. Counterterrorism. You can call them that because counterterrorism counterterrorism sounds like it's law enforcement, but the way that we do counterterrorism in the U.S. is we tend to wage war. It's proactive. So, in large scale and high tech and very bloody. Nice. So, uh, you know, you can call it anything you want, and it's still war, albeit under a different name. But yeah, Congress doesn't do that whole declaring war thing anymore. Now, Congress still gets a say in how we fight because Congress controls the money. Mm-hmm. That's so it's a not big like thing. The president, it's not like the president's just going over Congress's head and doing what he wants in the world because he, Congress still has to pay for it. So, are there any examples of that happening where the president? pushing forth this uh, uh, war-like, war-like thing and Congress not giving him the money to, uh, to do that action? You know, I don't think that happens much these days because our Congress is pretty pro-war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, as, is our, our, as have our presidents lately. Right. Uh, also, there's, there's the trick of if the president starts some military action then it becomes a patriotic duty to support the troops. Yeah, that's so, so in amazing. In fact, it's actually me. politically difficult for Congress to say no. Because because why? Because they, they'll they'll harm their record and everything. Their electability. Yeah, they'll be unpatriotic. It's amazing to yeah, me how that absolutely. is patriotic. How how sending people to war, sending people like getting getting people killed is patriotic is more patriotic than the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense how that's the case and how how you can't support the tr- the only way you can support the troops is by being pro war. You can't support the troops and be against war, which is right. It's so deeply ironic that it doesn't because you have all these you have all these returning soldiers who are a lot of them are they're anti war for for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> and, and so are they like they're not supporting themselves because they're anti war. Hmm. It's a weird thing. Well, I think you you've touched upon one of the, uh, the 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 buried contradictions inside the American political being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be you have to be a war hawk, pro pro soldier, uh, and that means sending them to war to get killed and maimed. Yeah, yeah, it's racist because it, that's the thing with the that with the Democrats and Republicans. You're 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 only two parties to choose from. They both pretty much have the same viewpoint on war even though they they like to think they don't but it's it's basically the same basically the same thing yeah there's shades of difference you know i i genuinely believe that uh that obama for one would like the the afghanistan war to end soon because he has other priorities he like things he'd like to pay for you know aside from it's very expensive war they are very expensive so um, granted, he's the one who escalated the Afghanistan war, but he had this theory that you could escalate it and then quickly wind it up, you know, um, quickly end it. Do you see that happening uh, anytime soon? I see us leaving. Absolutely. Okay. Do I see the war ending? No. So, no, not at all. So how does that work? Like, we've, we've drawn down in Iraq pretty significantly, right? Like we're like, what we're pers- out. Yeah, we're out. We're out of Iraq. And yeah. so, but there's still all this violence happening, and just like a reuptick in the right. last two weeks of really horrible, disgusting, huge bombings, and so right. that and that was going on even when we were there. So basically, when we leave Afghanistan, it's going to be the same thing all over again. 
Yes, but see, bear in mind that Afghans have been fighting Afghans for a very long time. Right. There was a we when we arrived in Afghanistan in 2001, there was already an ongoing civil war mm-hmm. between two, basically between North and South, two different ethnic groups. Why are they you fighting your, each other? There, Dari speakers and your Pashto speakers. Um, they're very different peoples with different values and mm-hmm. different histories, and um, they just don't get along. It's uh, it's one of those countries that's sort of balkanized. You know, you ever heard that term? I haven't. Balkanized. Yeah. So you know, you remember the old old Yugoslavia? Was yeah. This, the this Balkans. Country that was carved. Hmm? The the Bal- the Balkan Peninsula, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. The Balkans, right? The Balkans. So no, there's no a, peninsula. A <laughs> Right, it's not, it's not. But anyway, there's a country that was carved out of just sort of an arbitrary chunk of land that happened to include all of these people who didn't get along. Mm-hmm. You know, different histories, different expectations, different values. And but when you crowd them all into the same country because you drew an arbitrary line on a map, you force them to, to try to become one political entity. And that r- rarely works out. It can often make the tensions worse. Right. And you have the same thing in, in Afghanistan. You have... The Dari speakers and the and the, the Pashtuns, uh, Northerners and Southerners, who believe different things when it comes to their faith, and uh, have different you know ethic uh, ethical codes, um, different ways of life in terms of the way they feed their families, and you know the uh, they they're just very very different people. To Amer- to Americans, they all look the same. To Americans, they're all Afghanis, even though that's right. not actually a word. The word's Afghans. Really? Um, all this time, but yeah. uh, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afghanistan has some deep divisions between its various peoples, and those are just the two major groups. There's other smaller ones too, nomads that live within Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. These people don't get along. They haven't for a very, very long time. They were fighting each other fiercely in the '90s. It was way bloodier than the U.S. intervention in right. Afghanistan. That's the irony of the Afghanistan war. Once we showed up. It got a lot more peaceful because we yeah. came with UN, we came with the Red Cross, we came with all these aid workers, we came with peacekeepers, you know, so to speak. We came with NATO, with the uh, the NATO troops, and uh, that had the effect of changing the conflict in such a way that it became less intense. Now, the flip side there is that Americans started dying instead of right. just Afghans dying. And that's when we look at it. That's the cost that we calculate: the cost mm-hmm. to American uh, in American blood and American treasure. But from a sort of global perspective, that war actually got less intense when we showed up. Wow, that's something I've you know I've never heard before, and I'm probably never will. There's things like that that just don't make it to any type of mainstream media at all. Like that's not something that's talked about ever. That idea. Yeah, that's a, it's a tricky point to make because most people. Most Americans, when they watch the news, watch it only as Americans. Mm-hmm. So when they see this war, they only see the cost to Americans. They kind of assume the war began with America and will end with America, and that the only people who, who are dying who matter are Americans. But no, we, we are a phase of the conflict. We're going to leave, and the conflict's going to continue as it, as it has for decades. Do you think that these uh, conflict regions across the world, that they work any way like nature does, where like the best conservation technique is to do nothing, to where, to where, because that that's how I look at uh, nature, and that's how a lot of conservationists look at it. Is that the the best thing you can do is is not to touch anything and just leave it alone, and it, things will things will settle and work out and on their own if you don't try to draw borders or push people together and all those things. Do you think that will happen in Afghanistan? 
or not at all? There, there is some wisdom to that, mm-hmm. um, but it's not it's not an easy answer. The problem is that we are we do we are one race, we are one species, uh, and we we are connected in a lot of ways. We're connected in ways that are practical and ways that are just you know emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, in practical ways, we're connected because it's a truly global economy where. Uh, where, you know, economic functions should, in theory, move easily across borders. And it's hard to do when borders are closed and, and, and people are fighting each other. You start removing chunks of the planet from the global economy when you have war. Um, and so, in a sense, war can hurt everyone, albeit most people very little, because it hurts the global economy. So that's one argument in favor of getting involved to some extent, in all conflicts. But that's a, that's a weak argument. Um, I, I actually think that a strong, to, to me personally, a stronger argument for some involvement, selective and wise, but, but still involvement, is that it's just not right to let war rage unchecked. If there's something that we as a, as a political body that is, you know, the United States. There's something that we can do to save lives that in the end doesn't end up costing more lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if there's some way we can do a, a net good, then we should. What do you think the, uh, the future is for the, uh, the long-term future for the military-industrial complex? Well, that's always been a decreasing proportion of the American economy. Uh, you know the percentage of our of our of our GDP that we spend on the military has has with a couple little blips for the the Iraq War mm-hmm. uh, has steadily decreased over time. It went from something like fifty percent during World War II uh, into the like twenty and thirty percent in the sixties down to about three or four percent today. So you think so we spend three or four percent of our national treasure on the military, and that's not going to get bigger. Think it's going to keep getting smaller, or you think it will sort of stay yeah, the same? Yeah, absolutely. I think it will, and I think that's entirely consistent with the that sort of outbreak of global peace that I talked mm-hmm. about. There's less and less need for big, expensive, high-tech militaries every year. They become less important. Is that just and because so that there's more peace? Is that why? Is that what it is? Right. Absolutely. And a lot of that is it's peace feeds on itself. Think about the Cold War, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a conflict where um, one enemy would build a tank. Let's say the, the Soviets would build a tank, and we'd have to build either two tanks or one better tank. Mm-hmm. And then the Soviets would look at our tank and say, well, the great, they've got a better tank now, so we need to build a better tank or two more of the existing tank. And you had this sort of like lurching back and forth where both sides were trying to outdo the other in terms of quantity or quality of their weaponry. Right. And when you've got a lot of weaponry, it produces conflict. I mean, there's several conflicts in the world today that are fueled by leftover Cold War weaponry. Like what? The Somalia War is wow. a great example. That's interesting. It's like, it's like if you walk around with a gun, you're going to use it. <laughs> yeah, you have a tendency to. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you don't want to be making a lot of weaponry if, you, if, you, if what you want is world peace. So, uh, but we do make less weaponry every year as a part as a proportion of our economy because, you know, we we had that tipping point where the Cold War ended and a bunch of uh, a bunch of wars flared up, but we resolved those through various means. And now we've got more and more peace every year. And the more peace you have, the more peace you're gonna have. This is a very simplistic model, but so if you've got more peace, 
you can cut your military. If you cut your military, you're less likely to use your military in the future for bad, you know, in pursuit of bad objectives, which means more peace and so on and so forth until, until you know, in some kind of idyllic future that is probably not going to happen. Uh, militaries are this like boutique niche thing, <laughs> like SWAT teams. I love the idea only of for. Sorry? I love the idea of uh, using the word boutique for military yeah. purposes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just use them for like very select things, mm. which is why everybody loves commandos. Everybody loves U.S. Special Forces, right? Because it's a small group of guys, very good at what they do, and you only use them for certain things, and then you just sort of keep them in reserve. And that's the way that armies are going to be in the future, uh, ideally, is... Um, they're like emergency response teams. And a lot of that has to do also with the increased technology, right? Like, you cover a lot yeah. of these things. Does any of that stuff just scare the shit out of you? Like, these weird new technologies that, that are sort of uh, being developed? Yeah, you know, the ones that scare me the most are the ones that, um, that, we, that we could lose control of. What's the, what's uh, the and most... And a great example there... Well, the, people have been tinkering with bioweapons. Okay, that's always a great thing. <laughs> Yeah, not biological weapons in the sense that we used to think of them, which was just like an, an agent that would, you know, make you sick mm -hmm. and would spread. Um, rather now, I mean, those are bad enough, but now we're, we're tinkering with, with devices that modify people. Oh, man. Um, think of it as a gene bomb. Jesus, that's disperse, very scary. Could, yeah, you could disperse some sort of agent that would actually alter people, either alter their cognitive functions by interfering with their brain functions, uh, or could genetically alter them. This is real. A lot of that has to, a lot of that sort of has to happen in a laboratory environment, but mm -hmm. it's still possible today to, to you know, to, to for instance, to use um, electricity to tweak brain functions. Jeez. And that's we use that for therapy actually, mm -hmm. but can use it for military effect to make people dumber or smarter, depending on what you need. So is this uh, real, though? Have the ability is what no, yeah, this is real, but it's in a laboratory setting. Okay. Well, do, do they so have a name for them? About, they, do they call them, like, gene uh, weapons? They call it biological modification. Biological modification, Jesus. Yeah. And this is to load up so, with, load up with uh, 747 jet fuel and spray and chemtrails, right? Right, that's the idea, <laughs> that if you could weaponize this, then you could, you wouldn't even need to fight your enemy, you could just spray them with something and, you know, like, make them peaceful or kill them or turn them into something that you could... I mean, I can't even imagine what you'd want to turn them into, yeah. but you could make them weaker. Jeez, that's very scary. And there's all these things you could do to them. Yeah, and this is far future mm -hmm. stuff. Like, this stuff, at this point, very theoretical. All the practical uses today are very limited, but it's not hard to see where this can go. Do you think you this do might... Not yeah, you don't want mm -hmm. you don't want it getting in the hands of a rogue state, right? Shit, you don't want to put that in the hands of a legitimate state, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the other thing I was going to ask you. What exactly is a rogue state? But the state that is opposite you—that's <laughs> the rogue right. state. We're a rogue right. state to consider. Iran, Iran thinks we're a rogue state, right? I mean, yeah. So yeah. So and and there was a, a point in history when much of the world thought we were a rogue state when we were gallivanting across Iraq for very little good reason. So, yeah, um, yeah you know, <laughs> one person's rogue state is another person's uh, Homeland. Um, legitimate state. Yeah, so uh, you don't you don't want to, just don't open that Pandora's box. This right. whole idea of 
biomodifications is just a terrible, terrible idea. There might be great medical applications for all this stuff, but you cannot weaponize it. So that's one of those places where, that's one of those things where we need to get ahead of the curve in terms of outlawing that junk Mm -hmm. before, and we've got great legal regimes for limiting the use of chemical weapons and biological weapons and nuclear weapons. We, We need to start thinking about doing the same thing for biological modification. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a pretty good idea to not have that. I would like that. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll sign the petition. Are you going to have a petition? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sign a petition. Start, it'll be me and you. Send it to the president. <laughs> I guess that's the one thing I want to ask you here before we go is what do you think of, what do you make of the whole NDAA? The, the National, the, uh, the National, National Defense, Defense Authorization Act? Yeah. You mean the detention stuff? The, the whole, yeah, that and basically just the entire thing. Because I feel like it's something that people talk a lot about but maybe don't really know that much about. I, I feel like I'm one of those people too that I... I don't fully understand the whole implications of it and if it's yeah. as bad as I think okay, it is. Well, or I wouldn't get too alarmed, um, right. and, but let me qualify that. So an NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, we get these every year. Mm-hmm. That's the law that gives the Pentagon permission from Congress to spend money. But you can insert all sorts of policy into, those, into that law. And the last NDAA had some kind of worrying language in it that appeared to give the government power to detain Americans without cause, uh-huh. you know, to, to basically brand Americans as terrorists and extra legally apprehend them and sink them into some Gitmo style prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that that fear is mostly an artifact of sloppy writing in the law. Okay. Uh, We already have laws that give the president broad authority to detain people anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we use that. Right. Uh, we've you know we we've, we've got thousands of people in prisons in in Guantanamo Bay and in Bagram in Afghanistan among other places that were that are not um, in any kind of legal process where you know they they just simply been arrested and are facing trial. No, these people have just been disappeared into into holes, and they some of them may come out into into the legal process at some point, but many of them have been there for a decade or longer. And, uh, and that is a very big problem yeah. because it turns us into a kind of tyrannical state where we just gobble people up and do nasty things to them uh, without, while you know, trying to, to disguise all that, mm-hmm. to, to say, oh, it's counterterrorism, don't worry about it. But there's no oversight, there's no transparency, there's no, uh, there are no sort of legal checks and balances on that kind of behavior. That's extremely worrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the prospect of that happening in the United States to people who are not obviously terrorists is very slim. Uh, just because it'd be very hard to get away with that politically. Right. It's much easier when you're like capturing Mahmoud in Logar province, Afghanistan, and sticking him in the prison in Bagram because mm-hmm. most Americans don't care yeah. that we've sunk Mahmoud into a pit. Uh, even though Mahmoud may be totally innocent. Right. Uh, so, but once you start doing that in the U.S., it gets a lot trickier politically. Yeah, so I'm actually glad that people are really worried about that. Because it means that's that... A healthy, that's a healthy fear. Yeah, because at least they're aware of it and they know what's going on. So the, the, idea, the idea that they, that the government can do things, shady operations behind the scenes, is less likely because people are aware of it. 
they're they they know some yeah their awareness is the first uh, line of defense against that kind of stuff isn't it right and it's much easier for us americans to be aware of stuff that happens here right uh, as opposed to in afghanistan so um yeah i applaud people who are worried about the ndaa i would advise them not to start open revolution because i think what we're looking at is bad writing in a kind of sloppy law okay and i don't think I don't think it's happening yet in the U.S., and I don't think it's going to. Hey, but hey, if, it, if, if our neighbors start disappearing, I will be the first to advocate that you buy a weapon and start shooting federal agents. All right. We've got you on record saying that. Thanks, David. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yes, of course. I mean, shit, if the government starts scooping people up and sinking them into prisons for no good reason, yeah, of course we're going to revolt. Uh, I look forward <laughs> to the day. I can't wait. <laughs> so, so what's coming up for you? Are you traveling anytime soon to any places? Uh, I probably have to. You know, we've got the clock is ticking on Afghanistan, and I would be remiss if I didn't go back and cover the end of the war. Right. And then there's uh, all sorts of happy bullshit happening in other parts of the world too. <laughs> Somalia is Somalia is uh, always an interesting place. I'd like to get out there again. Wow. There's the hunt for the LRA in Congo. That's interesting. So yeah, I'm going to travel. I'm, I'm I'm not. I haven't booked any tickets yet, but yeah, it's. It's coming. Okay, and people can read about all your uh, all your art- all your articles are on warisboring dot com. Mm-hmm. And you're also a regular contributor to Wired for the uh, the Danger Room. Is that right? Danger Room blog. Yeah. Right, which yep. was uh, the wonderful article about Mega Drive that appeared some years That's ago. Right. Yeah. As anything mm-hmm. else, and people people can also buy your uh, graphic novel and other other things on Amazon or where else. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I read books on Amazon. Great. Books. War is boring is the big one. Anything I forget? Anything I've forgotten about? I don't think so. Oh, no. Twitter. <laughs> yes, I'm on Twitter. Dax. Got it. Daxe. Great. Well, David, thanks so much for uh, for talking to me and clarifying all these mystical, far-flung conflict ideas. My pleasure. And uh, best of luck to you, and uh, stay safe. If, or do. maybe stay like on the margins of safety. How about that? Just keep your fingers. Yeah, but I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, it's possible to go to these war zones and still stay safe. Yes. So. Have like safety in your back pocket, but smell the death in, down the street. Maybe that's it. I don't that know what it is. Terrible. That's a terrible we'll metaphor. Do, <laughs> that is a terrible <laughs> metaphor. Okay. <laughs> Bye, David. See you, buddy. Thank you. Feralio.com is an artist-friendly podcast collective hosted by castmates.fm. Host your own podcast at castmates.fm today. All of our artists reserve the rights to their materials. Your donations directly support your favorite artists, help pay for their show's production, and keep your favorite shows free. Visit feralio.com for other original shows and learn about our community of artists that help make this collective possible. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This outro features the music of the fancy. We are the fancy.net.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.